15, country, as he puts it, of his shameless frequent attion. There are many people who are eloquent about the war, who are authorities on the part played in it by the motor ambulance and who take an interest in the good relations of Great Britain and the United States, but there is nobody who can tell us, as Mr. James can, about style and the structure of sentences, and all that appertains to the aspect and value of words. Now and then in what here follows he speaks familiarly of these things for the first time in his life, not by any means because he jumped at the chance, but because his native kindness, whether consciously or unconsciously, seemed so ready to humor the insisting inquirer. It is very difficult, he said, seeking to diminish the tension so often felt by a journalist, even at the moment of a highly appreciated occasion, to break into graceful license after so long a life of decorum. Therefore you must excuse me if my egotism doesn't run very free or my complacency find quite the right turns. He had received me in the offices of the corps, business-like rooms, modern for London, low-sealed and sparely furnished. It was not by any means the sort of setting in which as a reader of Henry James I had expected to run to earth the offer of the Golden Bowl, but the place island nevertheless. Today, in the tension of wartime, one of the few approaches to a social resort outside his Chelsea home where he can be counted on. Even that delightful old world retreat, Landhouse, right, now claims little of his time. The interviewer spoke of the waterside Chelsea and Mr. James's long knowledge of it, but, sitting not overmuch at his ease and laying a friendly hand on the shoulder of his tormentor, he spoke, instead, of motor ambulances, making the point, in the interest of clearness that the American Ambulance Corps of Noyley, though an organization with which Richard Norton's corps is in the fullest sympathy, does not come within the scope of his remarks. I find myself chairman of our corps committee for no great reason that I can discover save my being the oldest American resident here interested in its work, at the same time that if I render a scrap of help by putting on record my joy even in the rather ineffectual connection so far as doing anything is concerned, I needn't say how welcome you are to my testimony. What I mainly seem to grasp, I should say, is that in regard to testifying at all unlimitedly by the aid of the newspapers, I have to reckon with a certain awkwardness in our position. Here comes up, you see, the question of our reconciling a rather indispensable degree of reserve as to the detail of our activity with the general American demand for publicity at any price. There are ways in which the close presence of war challenges the whole claim for publicity, and I need hardly say that this general claim has been challenged, practically, by the present horrific complexity of things at the front, as neither the Allies themselves nor watching neutrals have ever seen it challenged before. The American public island of course, little used to not being able to hear, and here is an absolute right, about anything that the press may suggest that it ought to hear about, so that nothing may be said ever to happen anywhere that it doesn't count on having reported to it, hot and hot, as the phrase island several times a day, we were the first American ambulance corps in the field, and we had a record of more than four months continuous service with one of the French armies, but the rigor of the objection to our taking the world into our intimate confidence is not only shown by our still unbroken inability to report in lively installments, but receives also a sidelight from the fact that numerous like private corps maintained by donations on this side of the sea are working at the front without the least commemoration of their deeds that island without a word of journalistic notice. I hope that by the time these possibly too futile remarks of mine come to such light as may await them Mr. Norton's report of our general case may have been published, and nothing would give the committee greater pleasure than that some such controlled statement on our behalf 
best proceeding from the scene of action itself, should occasionally appear. The ideal would, of course, be that exactly the right man, at exactly the right moment, should report exactly the right facts, in exactly the right manner, and when that happy consummation becomes possible we shall doubtless revel in funds. Mr. James had expressed himself with such deliberation and hesitation that I was reminded of what I had heard of all the verbal alterations made by him in novels and tales long since published, to the point, we are perhaps incorrectly told of replacing a, she answered, by a, she indefinitely responded, I should, indeed, mention that on my venturing to put to Mr. James a question or two about his theory of such changes he replied that no theory could be stated at any rate in the offhand manner that I seem to invite, without childish injustice to the various considerations by which a writer is moved. These determinate reasons differ with the context and the relations of parts to parts and to the total sense in a way of which no a priori account can be given. I dare say I strike you, he went on, as rather bewilderedly weighing my words, but I may perhaps explain my so doing very much as I the other day heard a more interesting fact explained. A distinguished English naval expert happened to say to me that the comparative non-production of airships in this country indicated, in addition to other causes, a possible limitation of the British genius in that direction, and then on my asking him why that class of craft shouldn't be within the compass of the greatest makers of sea ships, replied, after brief reflection, because the airship is essentially a bad ship, and we English can't make a bad ship well enough. Can you pardon? Mr. James asked my making an application of this to the question of one's amenability or plasticity to the interview, the airship of the interview is for me a bad ship, and I can't make a bad ship well enough. Catching Mr. James's words as they came was not very difficult, but there was that in the manner of his speech that cannot be put on paper, the delicate difference between the word recalled and the word allowed to stand, the earnestness of the massive face and alert eye, tempered by the genial comment of the body, as R.L. Stevenson has it. Henry James does not look his seventy years, he has a finely shaped head, and a face, that once strong and serene, which the painter and the sculptor may well have liked to interpret, indeed, in fine appreciation they have so wrought, dear Wentwood's admirable bust, purchased from last year's Royal Academy, shown by the Chantry Fund, will be permanently placed in the Tate Gallery, and those who fortunately know Sargent's fine portrait, to be exhibited in the sergeant room at the San Francisco exhibition, will recall its having been slashed into a last year by the militant suffragettes, though now happily restored to such effect that no trace of the outrage remains. Mr. James has a mobile mouth, a straight nose, a forehead which has thrust back the hair from the top of his commanding head, although it is thick at the sides over the ears, and repeats in its soft gray the color of his kindly eyes. Before taking in these physical facts one receives an impression of benignity and amenity not often conveyed, even by the most distinguished, and, taking advantage of this amiability, I asked if certain words just used should be followed by a dash, and even boldly added, are you not famous, Mr. James, for the use of dashes, dash my fame, he impatiently replied, and remember, please. That dogmatizing about punctuation is exactly as foolish as dogmatizing about any other form of communication with the reader. All such forms depend on the kind of thing one is doing and the kind of effect one intends to produce. Dashes, it seems almost platitudinous to say, have their particular representative virtue, their quickening force, and, to put it roughly, strike both the familiar and the emphatic note, when those are the notes required. 
with a felicity beyond either the comma or the semicolon, though indeed a fine sense for the semicolon, like any sort of sense at all for the pluperfect tense and the subjunctive mood, on which the whole perspective in a sentence may depend, seems anything but common. Does nobody ever notice the calculated use by French writers of a short series of suggestive points in the current of their prose? I confess to a certain shame for my not employing frankly that shade of indication, a finer shade still than the dash. But what on earth are we talking about? And the chairman of the core committee pulled himself up in deprecation of our frivolity, which I recognized by acknowledging that we might indeed hear more about the work done and doing at the front by Richard Norton and his energetic and devoted company workers. Then I plunged recklessly to draw my victim. May not a large part of the spirit which animates these young men be a healthy love of adventure? I asked. The question seemed to open up such depths that Mr. James considered a moment and began, I of course, don't personally know many of our active associates, who naturally waste very little time in London, but, since you ask me, I prefer to think of them as moved, first and foremost, not by the idea of the fun or the sport they may have, or of the good thing they may make of the job for themselves but by that of the altogether exceptional chance open to them of acting blessedly and savingly for others, though indeed if we come to that there is no such sport in the world as so acting when anything in the nature of risk or exposure is attached, the horrors, the miseries, the monstrosities they are in presence of are so great surely as not to leave much of any other attitude over when intelligent sympathy has done its best. Personally I feel so strongly on everything that the war has brought into question for the Anglo-Saxon peoples that humorous detachment or any other thinness or tepidity of mind on the subject affects me as vulgar impiety. Not to say as rank blasphemy, our whole race tension became for me a sublimely conscious thing from the moment Germany flung at us all her explanation of her pounds upon Belgium for massacre and ravage in the form of the most insolent. Because I choose to. Damn you all. Recorded in history. The pretension to smashing world rule by a single people, in virtue of a monopoly of every title, every gift and every right, ought perhaps to confound us more by its grotesqueness than to alarm us by its energy, but never do cherished possessions, whether of the hand or of the spirit, become so dear to us as when overshadowed by vociferous aggression. How can one help seeing that such aggression, if hideously successful in Europe, would, with as little loss of time as possible, proceed to apply itself to the American side of the world, and how can one, therefore, not feel that the Allies are fighting to the death for the soul and the purpose and the future that are in us, for the defense of every ideal that has most guided our growth and that most assures our unity, of course, since you ask me, my many years of exhibited attachment to the conditions of French and of English life, with whatever fond play of reflection and reaction may have been involved in it, Make it inevitable that these countries should peculiarly appeal to me at the hour of their peril, their need and their heroism, and I am glad to declare that, though I had supposed I knew what that attachment was, I find I have any number of things more to learn about it. English life, wound up to the heroic pitch, is at present most immediately before me, and I can scarcely tell you what a privilege I feel it to share the inspiration and see further revealed the character of this decent and dauntless people. However. I am indeed as far as you may suppose from assuming that what you speak to me of as the political bias is the only ground on which the work of our Corps for the Allies should appeal to the American public. Political, I confess, has become for me in all this a loose and question-begging term, but if we must resign ourselves to it as explaining some people's indifference, let us use a much better one for inviting their confidence. 
it will do beautifully well if givers and workers and helpers are moved by intelligent human pity, and they are with us abundantly enough if they feel themselves simply roused by, and respond to, the most awful exhibition of physical and moral anguish the world has ever faced, and which it is the strange fate of our actual generations to see unrolled before them. We welcome any lapse of logic that may connect inward vagueness with outward zeal, if it be the zeal of subscribers, presenters or drivers of cars, or both at once, stretcher-bearers, lifters, healers, consolers, handy Anglo-French interpreters, these extremely precious, smoothers of the way, in short, after whatever fashion, we ask of nobody any waste of moral or of theoretic energy, nor any conviction of any sort but that the job is inspiring and the honest, educated man a match for it. If I seem to cast doubt on any very driving intelligence of the great issue as a source of sympathy with us, I think this is because I have been struck, whenever I have returned to my native land, by the indifference of Americans at large to the concerns and preoccupations of Europe. This indifference has again and again seemed to me quite beyond measure or description though it may be in a degree suggested by the absence throughout the many-paged American newspaper of the least mention of a European circumstance unless some not-to-be-blinked war or revolution, or earthquake or other cataclysm has happened to apply the lash to curiosity, the most comprehensive journalistic formula that I have found myself, under that observation, reading into the general case is the principle that the first duty of the truly appealing sheet in a given community is to teach every individual reached by it every man woman and child to count on appearing there, in their habit as they live, if they will only wait for their turn, however, he continued, my point is simply my plea for patience with our enterprise even at the times when we can't send home sensational figures, they also serve who only stand and wait, and the essence of our utility, as of that of any ambulance corps, is just to be there, on any and every contingency including the blessed contingency of a temporary drop in the supply of the wounded turned out and taken on since such comparative intermissions occurred. Ask our friends, I beg you, to rid themselves of the image of our working on schedule time or on guarantee of a maximum delivery, we are dependent on the humors of battle, on incalculable rushes and lapses, on violent outbreaks of energy which rage and pass and are expressly designed to bewilder. It is not for the poor wounded to oblige us by making us showy but for us to let them count on our open arms and open lap as troubled children count on those of their mother. It is now to be said, moreover, that our opportunity of service threatens inordinately to grow, such things may any day begin to occur at the front as will make what we have up to now been able to do mere child's play, though some of our help has been rendered when casualties were occurring at the rate, say, of 5.000 in 20 minutes, which ought, on the whole, to satisfy us. In face of such enormous facts of destruction, here Mr. James broke off as if these facts were, in their horror, too many and too much for him. But after another moment he explained his pause. One finds it in the midst of all this as hard to apply one's words as to endure one's thoughts. The war has used up words, they have weakened, they have deteriorated like motor car tires, they have, like millions of other things, been more overstrained and knocked about and voided of the happy semblance during the last six months than in all the long ages before, and we are now confronted with a depreciation of all our terms, or, otherwise speaking, with a loss of expression through increase of limpness, that may well make us wonder what ghosts will be left to walk. This sounded rather desperate, yet the incorrigible interviewer, conscious of the wane of his only chance, 
ventured to glance at the possibility of a word or two on the subject of Mr. James's present literary intentions, but the kindly hand here again was raised, and the mild voice became impatient. Pardon my not touching on any such irrelevance. All I want is to invite the public, as unblushingly as possible, to take all the interest in us it can, which may be helped by knowing that our bankers are Masros, Brown Brothers and Company 59 Wall Street, New York City, and that checks should be made payable to the American Volunteer Motor Ambulance Corps. A talk with Belgium's Governor by Edward Lyle Fox from the New York Times, April 11, 1915. Copyright. 1915, by the Wildman News Service, it would have been a very grave mistake not to have invaded Belgium, it would have been an unforgivable military blunder, I justify the invading of Belgium on absolute military grounds, what other grounds are there worthwhile talking about when a nation is in a war for its existence, it is the ruler of German Belgium speaking, the stern, serious-faced Governor General von Bissing, whom they call, Iron Fist, the man who crushes out sedition, returning, I had just come up from the front around Lille, and almost the only clothes I had were those on my back, and the mud of the trenches still clung to my boots and puttees in yellow cakes. They were not the most proper clothes in which to meet King Albert's successor, but in field grey I had to go. The Governor-General received me in a dainty Lewiskin's room done in rose and French grey, and filled incongruously with delicate chairs and heavy brocade curtains, a background which instantly you felt precisely sweeped His Excellency in the English newspapers, which, by the way, are not barred from Berlin cafes, I had read of His Excellency as the Iron Fist, or the Heavy Heel, and I rather expected to see a heavy, domineering man, instead, a slender, stealthy man in the uniform of a general rose from behind a tapestry top table, revealing, as he did, a slight stoop in his back, perhaps a trifle foppish, he held out a long-fingered hand, General von Bissing spoke no English, Somehow I imagined him to be one of those old German patriots who did not learn the language simply because it was English. Through it, Herrmann I asked the Governor-General what Germany was doing toward the reconstruction of Belgium. I told him America, when I had left, was under the impression that Belgium was a land utterly laid waste by the German armies. I frankly told him that in America the common belief was that the German military government meant tyranny. What was Germany doing for Belgium, I think? replied Governor-General von Bissing, that we are doing everything that can be done under the circumstances. Those farmlands which you saw, coming up from Lille to Brussels, were planted by German soldiers and in the spring they will be harvested by our soldiers. Belgium has not been devastated, and its condition has been grievously misstated. As you have seen, you must remember that the armies have passed back and forth across it German, Belgian, English and French but I think you have seen that only in the paths of these armies has the countryside suffered, where engagements were not fought or shots fired, Belgium is as it was, there has been no systematic devastation for the purpose of intimidating the people, you will learn this if you go all over Belgium, as for the cities, we are doing the best we can to encourage business, of course, with things the way they are now, it is difficult, I can only ask you to go down one of the principal business streets here, the Rue de Lanouf, for instance, and price the articles that you find in the shops and compare them with the Berlin prices. The merchants of Brussels are not having to sacrifice their stock by cutting prices, and, equally important, there are people buying. I can unhesitatingly say that things are progressing favorably in Belgium. The conversation turned upon Belgian and English relations before this war. 
the Governor-General mentioned documentary evidence found in the archives in Brussels, proving an understanding between these countries against Germany. He spoke briefly about the point that the subjects of King Albert had been betrayed into the hands of English financiers and then laconically said, The people of Belgium are politically undisciplined children. They are the victims of subtle propaganda that generally takes the form of articles in French and neutral newspapers. And General von Bissing looked me straight in the eyes, as though to emphasize that by neutral he meant the newspapers of the United States. I can understand the French doing this, he said, because they always use the Belgians and do not care what happens to them. It is beyond my comprehension, though, how the government of any neutral country permits the publication of newspaper articles that can have but one effect and that is to encourage revolt in a captured people. A country likes to call itself humanitarian, and yet it persists in allowing the publication of articles that only excite an ignorant and disciplined people and lead them to acts of violence that must be wiped out by force. And the governor-general's mouth closed with a click. Do you know that the people of Brussels, whenever a strong wind carries the booming of heavy guns miles in from the front, think that French and English are going to recapture the city? Any day that we can hear the guns faintly, we know that there is an undercurrent of nervous expectancy running through the whole city. It goes down alleys and avenues and fills the cafes. You can see Belgians standing together, whispering. Twice they actually set the date when King Albert would return. This excitement and unrest, and the feeling of the English coming in is fostered and encouraged by the articles in French and neutral newspapers that are smuggled in. I do not anticipate any uprising among the Belgians. Although the thoughtless among them had encouraged it, an uprising is not a topic of worry in our councils. It could do us no harm. We would crush it out like that. And von Bissing snapped his thin fingers. But if only for the sake of these misled and betrayed people, all seditious influences should cease. I asked the Governor General the attitude of officials of the Belgian government who were being used by the Germans in directing affairs. My predecessor, General von der Goltz, he replied informed me that the municipal officials in Brussels and most Belgian cities showed a good company operative spirit from the start. The higher officials were divided, some refusing flatly to deal with the German administration. I do not blame these men, especially the railway officials, for I can see their viewpoint. In these days railway roads and troop trains were inseparable, and if those Belgian railway officials had helped us, they would have committed treason against their country. There was no need, though for the post office officials to hold out, and only lately they have come around, realizing, however, that without their department the country would be in chaos. The officials of the Department of Justice immediately company operated with us. Today the Belgian civil courts try all ordinary misdemeanors and felonies. Belgian penal law still exists and is administered by Belgians. However, all other cases are tried by a military tribunal, the Feldjurecht. I asked General von Bissing if there was much need for this military tribunal. I shall not forget his reply. We had a few serious cases, he said. Occasionally there is a little sedition but for the most part it is only needle pricks. They are quiet now. They know why. And, slowly shaking his head, von Bissing, who was known as the sternest disciplinarian in the entire German army, smiled. We talked about the situation in America. The truth will come out, said von Bissing slowly. Your country is renowned for fair play. You will be fair to Germany. I know. Your American Relief Commission is doing excellent work. It is in the highest degree necessary. At first the German army had to use the food they could get by foraging in Belgium. 
for the country does not begin to produce the food it needs for its own consumption, and there were no great reserves that our troops could use, but the German army is not using any of the Belgian food now. I asked the Governor General if the Germans had not been very glad that America was sending over food. It is most important, he said, that America regularly sends provisions to Belgium. Your country should feel very proud of the good it has done here. I welcome the American Relief Committee. We are working in perfect harmony. Despite reports to the contrary, we never have had any misunderstanding. Through the American press, please thank your people for their kindness to Belgium. But, he continued impressively, referring back to the justification of Germany's occupation and speaking with quiet force, if we had not sent our troops into Belgium, the English would have landed their entire expeditionary army at Antwerp, and cut our line of communication. How do I know that? Simply because England would have been guilty of the grossest blunder if she had not done that, and the man who was in charge of England's army has never been known as a blunderer. A charge in the dark by O.C.A. child, out of the trenches lively. Lads, steady, steady there. Number two, step like your feet were tiger's pads crawl when crawling's the thing to do. Column left, through the sunken road, keep in touch as you move by feel. Empty rifles no need to load night works close work. Stick to steel. Wait for shadows and watch the clouds. When it's moonshine, down you go. Quiet, quiet, as men in shrouds. Cats a prowl in the dark go slow. Curse you. There, did you have to fall? Damn your feet and your blind bad eyes. Caught in the open. Caught that's all. Searchlights. Slaughter we meant surprise. Shrapnel fire a bit too low gets us though on the ricochet. Open order and in we go. Steel. Cold steel. And we'll make em gay. Got above. Not there to a win. Left. While my men go on do die. Take them in sergeant. Take them in. Go on. Fellows. Good luck goodbye. A new Poland by Gustave Herf Gustave Herf. Offer of the article translated below. Which appears in a recent number of his paper. Logaire Social Suppressed. It is reported by the French authorities has been described as, the man who fights all France. He is 44 years old, and has spent one-fourth of his life in prison, on account of socialistic articles against the French flag and government. He used to continue writing such articles from prison and thus get his sentences lengthened. Herb has always opposed everything savoring of militarism and conquest. From his article on Poland it will be seen that, although he says nothing anti-French or antagonistic to the Allies in general, he desires a Russian triumph over Germany not for his own sake, but as a preliminary to a reconstruction of the Polish nation out of the lands wrested from Poland by Russia, Germany, and Austria. In spite of its vagueness, the Grand Duke Nicholas's proclamation justifies the most sanguine hopes. This has been recognized not only by all the Poles whom it has reached, those of Russian Poland, and the three million Polish refugees who live in America, but moreover, all the Allies have interpreted it as a genuine promise that Poland would be territorially and politically reconstructed. What would it be right to include in a reconstructed Poland, if the great principle of nationality is to be respected? First, such a Poland would naturally include all of the Russian Poland of today by that I mean all the districts where Poles are in a large majority. This forms a preliminary nucleus of area code 12000000 inhabitants among whom are about to dot zero 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 dot zero 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 Jews. This great proportion of Jews is accounted for by the fact that Poland is in the zone where Jews are allowed to live in Russia. 
Our new Poland would not comprise the ancient Lithuania the districts of Wilno, Kovno, and Grodno although Lithuania formerly was part of Poland and still has about one million Polish inhabitants who form the aristocracy and bourgeoisie. Lithuania, which is really the region of the Niemen, is peopled by Lutz, who had their own language, resembling neither Polish nor Russian, and they likewise hope to obtain someday a measure of autonomy in the Russian Empire, with the right to use their language in schools churches, and civil proceedings, one thing is certain, they would protest, and rightly, against actual incorporation into the new Poland, the 125.000 square kilometers and area code 12000000 inhabitants of Russian Poland, lying around Warsaw, would constitute the nucleus of reconstructed Poland. Must we add to this the 79.000 square kilometers and 8.000.000 inhabitants of Galicia, which was Austria's share in the spoils of old Poland? Certainly, so far as western Galicia around Krakow is concerned, for this is a wholly Polish region, the Poles there numbering to .500.000. As for eastern Galicia, of which the principal city is Lemberg, Olvaf in Polish, the question is more delicate. Though Eastern Galicia has over 1.500.000 Poles and 600.000 Jews, most of the population is Ruthenian. Now these Ruthenians, who are natives, subjugated in former times by the conquering Poles, and who still own much of the big estates, are related to the Little Russians, the southerners of Russia, and speak a dialect which is to a Russian what Provençal is to French. Besides, whereas the Poles are Catholics, the Ruthenians are Greek Orthodox Christians like the Russians, but differ from the latter in that they are connected with the Roman Church, and are thus schismatics in the eyes of the Russian priests. Should these Ruthenians be annexed to Russia along with the 1.500.000 Poles and 500.000 Jews, among whom they have lived for centuries, they would scarcely look upon this as acceptable unless they were certain of having under Russian rule at least equal political liberty and respect for their dialect and religion as they had under Austrian rule. Should they be incorporated with the rest of Polish Galicia into the new Poland, it is hardly probable that they desire this, having enjoyed under Austria a considerable measure of autonomy as regards their language and 